Hey there, I'm Brittany, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can visit our website at capecodchurch.com. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy this message in our current series. Good morning. I'm not exactly sure what to make of we throw parties when pastor's done with a series. I'm going to need to talk with Brittany after about exactly what did she mean by that. But we are throwing a party next weekend. We're going to be talking about legacy, but I'm getting ahead of myself because what we've said is uh, you have to walk through your story. How did you become you before you can work on your legacy. But if you can write your story, if you can understand your story, how you became you, then you can work on your legacy. But that's a week away. I want to start with a question. And you're, ignore your first reaction to it, okay? How's that for a setup? When did you become you? Like, what, what was the moment you became you? Now, I know our first reaction is like, well, there's no moment. There was lots of moments, lots of formative events, lots of formative people that were a part of how I became me. And I, I get that. That's true. But if you had to boil it down, if you had to pick one formative, life-changing, critical, pivotal moment when you became you. What was it? Because in that moment, there is something to learn about who you are and how you became that person. Abraham has a moment. And to be fair, Abraham has a lot of moments. I mean, his story as the great patriarch of our faith is just full of these epic stories that we've been walking through. And we don't even have time for all of the stories. But there's one moment where Abraham becomes who Abraham was meant to be. It is the pinnacle of the story. It is where everything in the ark is driving towards, and it's where we come to today. But before we get there, I should set a little bit of uh, a setting for you because Abraham has, well, he's gotten a new name. He's gone from Abram to Abraham by the time we get to Genesis chapter 22. Sarai has become Sarah. And famously, God came to them in their old age. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, and he said, you're going to have a child. And Sarah laughed famously. That's not gonna happen. And a year later, just as God had promised, here is their child of promise, Isaac. I mean, they had waited all of their lives for this, a son to carry on the name. 
the heritage, the lineage. God had promised to make out of Abraham a great nation, and here was the son through which he would do it, and God had miraculously prayed. Imagine the pressure on that kid. Imagine the doting parents with their only son. Man, they loved this boy. This literally changed everything. Now, the son of promise was there, Isaac. Now God's plan could be fulfilled. A great nation was in the world. God had led them. He had delivered them. He had plopped them in the promised land. He had given them all of this land, and now he had given them a son. Just like God had said, the promise was coming true. Good things happen to good people, right? That's what we think. That's what makes this next piece of the story so important. Let me pick it up in Genesis chapter 22 and verse 1. This is Abraham's moment. Sometime later, it says, God tested Abraham's faith. Huh. Can I just say up front, I've always struggled with this passage. So if you find yourself here reading this story and going, ah, there's so much unanswered here. I'm with you. But sometime later, God tested Abraham's faith. Abraham got called. Yes, he replied. Here I am. And it seems like Abraham had this unique conversational relationship with God. Not just here, but in multiple places. And God says to him in verse 2, Take your son, your only son. Yes, Isaac, whom you love. Robert Alter, in his translation, he's one of the great Hebrew scholars of this generation, his translation of the Old Testament, frames this as a, as a conversation. Take your son. Yes, that son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love. As though it were recording one side of a conversation as Abraham says, which son? What do, you, what do you want? And go to the land of Moriah. Go and sacrifice him as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I will show you. This is why I find this passage so difficult. All through the scriptures, God has consistently condemned this. And if you know the end of the story, you know where it ends, and it doesn't end there. But still, this is the story, and I don't like it. And I'll confess to you, when I read this story, here's what I think. I wouldn't pass that test. I'm just being straight up honest. If you think less of your pastor, go right ahead. But I'm just telling you, I might pass the test of giving up my own life for the faith. I hope I would. But the life of a son or a daughter is a next level test of faith. And that's why the next verse is so remarkable. It says the next morning, Abraham got up early. <laughs> 
I mean, this is the day I'm hitting the snooze button. I am definitely sleeping in. And he saddled his donkey and he took two of his servants with him along with his son Isaac and then he chopped wood for a fire. It's like adding in this, this detail. He's out chopping wood and, and he set out for the place God had told him about. This was not the plan. <laughs> this is not the plan. This is not how it's supposed to go down. And if I'm Abraham, I'm saying so. I'm, I'm just, I'm negotiating. I'm like, God, hold on a moment. And what's remarkable about this is Abraham doesn't negotiate, but it's not that Abraham never negotiated. He just doesn't hear. Four chapters before, there is a famous scene of negotiation. You, if you're familiar with the Old Testament story, you'll remember this one. God says, I'm going to judge Sodom for their wickedness. And he says, I'm going to destroy the entire city. And Abraham's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Because Lot's there. He's like, nah. God, would you, I mean, there, there are some righteous people who said this city is wicked, they're unjust, and they deserve judgment. And Abraham says, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If there's 50 people in that city that are righteous, you wouldn't destroy them, right? For 50 people, and, and it's like a conversation, and God says, all right, for 50 people. And then it's like Abraham realizes, ah. He says, what about 45? True story, you can go, it's chapter 18, go back and read it. I won't read it all. What about 45. God's like, all right, 45, 45. And then Abraham says, 40? 30? 20? He's like negotiating. 10? God says, all right, for 10. But there wasn't 10 righteous. And yet here, this, this moment, Abraham's faith is, man, he gets up early. He prepares the wood and he sets off. What do you do when you face the test of control? What do you do when God's plan is not your plan and you have no control over it? The test of control. When there's nothing I can do. You know what I do? I negotiate. And here's what my negotiation sounds like. God... I thought if I did this, you would do that. You ever done that? God, come on. I thought if I went to church, it was good. Some of you are like, it's not? <laughs> what am I doing here? Like, God, if I, how about this one? If I work hard and I'm honest, I'll get ahead. I'll do well. I'll be blessed. My integrity will always be rewarded. And then, in a moment of brutal unfairness, you find yourself on the outside looking in. God, I thought if I was faithful in my marriage, then he or she would be too. I thought if 
than you would. And, and what happens is when, when, we, when we get caught in this negotiation, God, I just, like, like this doesn't, I'm like trapped, God, because I thought if I did this, then you would, and we're stuck because we have no control. You know what happens when we get locked in that negotiation with God? Worry and fear take over. And then they morph into something uglier. They morph into bitterness and anger and sometimes vengeance. I thought, if I did this, I would get this. And it starts with worry and then it morphs into fear and then it grows into anger and bitterness and vengeance. And the signs are all over our lives. I was driving down the road the other day and I, I saw in someone's front yard, one of those, you know, those people put those big rocks in the front of their yard and then they have their, the number of their street number carved into it. It's kind of cool, right? You know, it takes some work though because you got to get somebody out there and and, and clearly somebody had just bought this house and the, they had this big giant rock and on it, it had the street number, which was still there. But clearly whoever had owned the house before had put something else underneath it. I don't know what it was because who the new owner had just taken a chisel to it. And I just drove by and I just was like, it's like sandblaster chisel. It just, they just like carved it. I mean, it looked angry. It probably wasn't. It was probably just somebody else's name, but they were like, no, I am not living with that. I don't care if it's written in stone. I got a chisel. I got a sandblaster. I got whatever it takes. And well, there's just this monument to what was. And I don't know what was, but I know something was. And sometimes when we're looking at our own lives, I don't know what was, but I know something was because there's a lot of worry and there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of bitterness and there's a lot of anger and it's the scars of the things that we couldn't control. What do you do? The test of control. Richard Rohr in his, his great little book, Adam's Return, has these five rules that I've sort of been following along, and he he puts it so brutally that it's like it's like pure tough love. And his fourth one is simply this: it's just a reminder you are not in control. Goodness, I hate that. And yet, it has been repeatedly true in my life. I am not in control. So what do you do? That's the point. You can't do anything. That's the test of control. You, <laughs> what do you do? You, you surrender. Let, let, let me read to you this story of surrender. Or let, me, let me set the stage for you, and then I'm going to read the final piece of the story. Abram, Abraham gets up early, loads up, and he brings some of his workers with him, and he brings the fire with him, and he brings the wood with him. He brings the knife. In fact, in the, the Hebrew, there's a couple of words for knife, and the knife he brings is literally like a cleaver. I mean, this is like no joke. And he sets off for Mount Moriah, 
And he gets there, and he says to his servants, he says, hey, you guys wait here. Isaac and I, we got, we got work to do. And he heads up to the mountain, and he builds an altar. And somehow this old man binds up this young man. The young man lets him do it. And he places him on the altar. We pick it up in verse 10. Let me just read it to you. And Abraham picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. <laughs> this is why, listen, I would not pass this test. And my guess is most of us would, none of us maybe. In fact, when I read this, I'm reminded that the the, the, the test is matched to the man, that, that Abraham is a unique man of faith, and, and he is surrendered to what God is doing. And it says that he picked up the knife to kill his son as a sacrifice. And then in verse 11, it says, at that moment, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Now, I'm going to give you my interpretation. This is my grand Hebrew interpretation. He says it twice. I almost picture the angel at heaven go, oh, oh, crap, he's going to do it. I know you can't say that, but I think it's in the Hebrew there. It's like, Abraham, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, and God's up there going, I told you, this guy is no joke. This guy trusts me. And the angel's like, no, whoa, 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 no, Abraham, 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 we got it, we got it, we got it, we got it. Let's let him watch what it says. Yes, Abraham replied. <laughs> it's like, he's messing with the angel now. Here I am. I've been waiting for you. <laughs> Don't lay a hand on the boy, the angel said. Do not harm him in any way. For now, for now I know that you truly fear God. You have not withheld from me even your son, your only son. And then Abraham looked up and saw a ram caught by its horns in a thicket. So he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering in place of his son. Abraham, Abraham, now I, now I know. What a unique moment of, of surrender. It turns out, though, there's a couple of different kinds of surrender. There's, there's what I call dead-end surrender. You know what dead-end surrender is? Dead-end surrender is when, you, when you've run out of options. You've got nowhere to, nowhere to turn. And you know what dead-end surrender feels like? It, it, it feels like it feels like losing. That's, that's what it feels like. It's, I ran out of options, and I gave up. I ran out of options, and I gave up. I'm not saying it's, it's entirely useless, and you've probably had times in your life where you, you surrendered because what else were you going to do? You ran out of options. And you gave up, and it didn't feel good. 
It felt like losing. But what else were you going to do? You had no control. My dog has learned this lesson, by the way. Ruby, the golden doodle. Tammy's favorite child. We have a fenced-in backyard, and we, we have squirrels, lots of squirrels. And they taunt her. They will literally come up and sit on the porch, get up on their hind legs, and look through the back glass window. Just smile. And she, she goes up to that window, and she'll do it quiet. Like, like she's sneaking up on them, and she'll just wait. She'll look at us and wait for us to let her. And we'll go over to the door and quietly, and she'll like sneak back so the door can open. And then she's like a greyhound as soon as gone. Like, and she hasn't figured out yet that squirrels climb trees. Because by the time she gets there, she's like. And I'm sitting there watching this thing. This thing, she, I'm like, dumb dog. But she has learned this. She has completely given up on birds. Somewhere along the line, she learned that these things that had wings, no matter how bad she wanted to get them, not going to happen. They fly. Like, she figured out flying, but she hasn't figured out climbing. And at some point, she'll become an old dog, and she'll figure it out. But right now, and I watch her, and here's, and here's where she's got the look of surrender. She'll be sitting there, and there's a bird right there, and she's just looking at it. Nothing I can do about you. I wanna I wanna eat you, but I and she won't even move. And I and I think in, in some ways it this is this is what dead end surrender looks like. What can I do? There's not a lot of joy in living that way, is there? And that surrender that's just like, nothing I can do. They're going to do their thing. I did what I could do, but... But that's not what happened here with Abraham. In fact... I think there's another kind of surrender, and this is where I want to bring all of this to. There is a hopeful surrender. And I think if you read the story closely, you'll see that Abraham had surrendered himself to this, but in the most hopeful of ways. In fact, let me, let me read to you a couple of things. In, uh, in, in verse 5, let me read to you exactly what he said to his servants. He said, stay here with the donkey. This is when he got to the bottom of the mountain and he's got the, he's got the meat cleaver and he's got the wood and he's got the fire. And it says, stay here with the donkey, he told his servants. The boy and I will travel a little further. We will worship there and then we will come right back. Did you catch that? <laughs> we he was already plotting what was going to happen after. Like, we will come right back. 
In fact, a few verses later, his son says to him, he says, he gets to the top of the mountain, his son's looking around, he's going, wait, 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 whoa, whoa. He says, dad, um, uh, here's the wood and the fire. Where's the lamb? Like, like we're all ready for a sacrifice, but where, where is the lamb? And his father says this, God will provide a sheep for the burnt offering, my son. Abraham answered, and they both walked on together. Way later in the New Testament, 2,000 years later in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it tells us that Abraham actually believed that if need be, God would raise his son from the dead. There is a a presence of hope. There is is this sense that, that God is not finished, that this story is still being written. So while he's surrendered himself, he surrendered himself not to a fatalistic conclusion. He surrendered himself to a God who is still writing the story and that he believed could write a better story than what it looked like then. His surrender wasn't to There's nothing I can do. His surrender was to a God who cared for him, who loved him, and who would keep his promises. You see, it's different when we surrender ourselves to someone who loves us. Next weekend, uh, in addition to our chili fest, we're we're actually, we have a, we, we do this a couple times a year, we have a breakfast for all of our volunteers, all of our Sunday morning volunteers, that whether they're greeters or work in the sound booth or teach children or work in the cafe, all of, all of them, we get together for this big breakfast and there's a chef in the church and he doesn't like it when I call him out, but he makes it and I'm telling you, it's incredible. You say, why are you telling this? I'm bribing you people, I'm bribing you. But actually, we never give them instructions. We're never like, hey, could you, could, could you bring some, uh, some bacon, you know, maybe some egg? We, we don't, we don't, because here's what we've learned. We've learned like, man, just like, like this guy is, not only is he gifted, he loves to bless people and to surprise them with goodness. So every time we're like, oh my goodness, where did all of this come from so we don't even we would never try and control we're just like hey hey whatever you want to do we're surrendering ourselves to his good choice because we know let me tell you where i don't do that mcdonald's i never go through the drive-thru and say hey give me whatever you think would be awesome today McDonald's doesn't want you to do it. Like, they, like, give you numbers so you don't mess it up. Like, number two, number three, I'll take a number three with a large this, right? I don't, I don't, because I don't trust the person, because their goal is not to bring me joy and delight. Their joy is to give me food fast. That's it. And when I go, I'm in control. And I'm trying to work the system as best I can. In fact, my, uh, my son, uh, who's on college, he, he told me the other day, he said, Dad, he said, um, go, go, he said, would you go to McDonald's, pick me up? He said, give me a, 
uh, two six-piece. I'm like, don't they have like a 10? He goes, Dad, it's a McDonald's hack. I'm like, a what? He goes, yeah, two six-piece is the same price as a 10-piece. Two extra nuggets for the same price. <laughs> That's a college student, people. That's what we do when we're in control, but, but when we surrender, a hopeful surrender is like, I have a God who loves me. And where you find yourself in a place where you have no control, your ex has done this, and you have no control over it. You've poured yourself out for a son or a daughter, and you have no control. You did everything you could for your job, and you have no control. You started a business, worked 12-hour days, seven days a week, and you have no control. I'm just saying in those places in our life where we discover I don't have any control, surrender. A hopeful surrender to a God who is not done writing your story. And just like Abraham we begin to say the things that remind us the story's not over. See, we can't finalize a story if God's not finished writing it. And where the test of control comes into my life and I find myself facing the one thing I never wanted to face and I can do nothing about. You have a choice. I have a choice of hopeful surrender to a God who loves me and is writing a beautiful story. Would you bow with me? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. And maybe you've got a moment to reflect on the places in your life that feel out of control. And maybe you can resonate with the worry and fear, the anger and bitterness, the vengeance that can so easily flow out of that. Maybe you look at your life and you feel a bit like that rock that's just been chiseled. That's what dead-end surrender looks like. Nothing I can do. Nothing I can do. But if you believe 
that your story is not just your story, but it's God's story, and he's writing it, then you have to believe this. You have to believe he's not done. That what feels impossible and out of reach and just simply not good is not the end. Father, we humble ourselves in prayer to be reminded of these places in our lives where we have so little control. And it seems like, Father, it's in those places that we've spent so much of our living, so much of our energy, so much of our pain. But today, we want to trade One kind of surrender for another, Father. We want to a surrender that realizes there is a God who loves us, who is writing a story. And just where I think you couldn't do something, you write a whole new chapter. So, Father, our prayer as a church together is for the one who's here this morning, who's just hurting. Father, we we so easily get caught in what we can do, but Father, today, we give it to you. We're not just surrendering to empty facts and the end of a story, Father. We're giving it hopefully to you because we believe that you love us. You're not done. And we pray this together. In Jesus' name, amen.